This is Voices of Research. I am Mikael Tristadius, and you are listening to Radio Moreni. Right then, once more onto the breach, our latest guest in this little radio show, Voices of Research, is Mary Nurminen. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well then, where are you from and how long have you been in Finland? I'm from Indiana in the Midwest, a very, very small town about two hours from Chicago. And I've lived in Finland permanently for 32 years now, since 1988. That's 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 longer than I've actually been on this planet. See, yeah, so I'm more Finnish than you are. <laughs> <laughs> in addition, I was here, I, I came originally as an exchange student in high school. And spent one year, and then then I was home for six years, and then I came back. That probably had something to do with it that you came to live here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got invited back for a visit in 1988, and that's when I stayed. Well, yes, the cold north. The invite was one reason why you stay, but were there other reasons why you choose this place? And why Tampere? Why not Helsinki, for example? And Well, if you chose Tampere, there aren't that many universities to choose, but why this one? Okay, first of all, I I didn't live in Tampere. When I came as an exchange student and when I came back, I was an exchange student in Pyhäsalmi, which is about halfway between Oulu and Jyväskylä. And when I came back, I went to Iisalmi. And I lived in Iisalmi for three years, and then we moved to Jyväskylä for two years, and then we moved to Tampere. So I came to Tampere just because my husband got a job here, and that's why I'm in Tampere. And why this university, uh, it wasn't a choice between this university or another. Um, I was working in industry on the business side in the corporate Finnish world, and I came from there to this university. So it was more a choice of, you know, do I continue in the business world or do I make a switch over to academia? 32 years, I suppose you have liked it here. Yeah. Considering your surname is rather Finnish one as well, all has yes. gone pretty well. Yes, yes. Do you ever miss home? If I don't get to visit enough, then yes. So, for example, right now, last time I was home was October 2018, I think. And that's because of Corona, that you can't go to the States. But that I miss then, but I, I don't really wish that I could go live there, especially in the last four years. <laughs> I'm very happy to be living here. <laughs> so Before that, I'd say that, you know, life here, it's been always very similar and comparable to my friends' lives in the U.S. So it, I consider it fairly normal and, you know, living here or there, it's fine either way. <laughs> so has this become another home? Yes. Well would be quite bad if it hadn't yeah. for 32 so in, years. Yeah, in some ways I'm I've become quite Finnish and in some ways I'll never be Finnish. I guess that never leaves you. Nope. Well then, what about your career as a researcher? How did you choose this profession? I suppose it was not always planned. Was it just chance that led on this path? Yeah, perhaps. I did my master's degree in Uvascula in the early 90s. And when I did my master's thesis, I really liked the work, which surprised me. And one of my choices after that would have been to continue. But then chance came along and I ended up working in industry 
But during that time, it was 18 years that I worked in industry before I returned to academia in 2013 and came to the university. During that time, I did for many years teach one course here at the department where I now work. I taught a course in technical writing. So I was an adjunct teacher for years and years. And then a position came to teach translation and they were looking specifically for somebody who could teach Finnish to English translation. And so I applied for that and got that job. To the subject at hand then, your research. As far as I know, and you just mentioned, um, you work with languages and translation and uh, translation technology, uh, for instance. How would you describe your work? My work in research or in teaching? Well, let's go with teaching for okay. first. Okay, teaching. Thing. Yeah, so the one great thing about working at the university is you're really doing two jobs. I mean, it's the great thing and it's the, the difficult thing is trying to find time and fit them together somehow. It's the challenge we're all dealing with every day. Um, but it also makes it really interesting and fun. Um, how would I describe my work? So I teach the future multilingual communicators of Finland and Europe and the world. It's very interesting work. I like teaching. I like working with students. I've never looked back really in that part. I, I really like the teaching side. On the research side, right now I'm finishing up my PhD. So it's it's a particular spot in the career of a researcher. And besides the regular trying to deal with fitting teaching and research together, you have this added thing of trying to finish up the very big piece of work. And that's a bit frustrating right now, but hopefully it will be done soon. Is it hard to separate these different works? I mean, teaching and research from each other and then PhD? Yeah, because they require very different thought processes and parts of your brain and processes, and, and they're pretty different from each other. That's one of the reasons they're difficult to fit together. And my colleagues, I look around at the strategies people have come up with and tried, and we're all always experimenting with strategies to do this. My current one is that I have my teaching from Monday to Wednesday, and then I reserve Thursday and Friday for doing peer research. And this works sometimes better, sometimes worse. It's a commonly implemented strategy among my colleagues, or, or we try to do that because it's it's been found to be pretty effective. So And so far it's working okay. I also have taken whole periods of time and been on research leave, and that, that's been a wonderful thing to be able to do one of those things fully as just a full-time job. Just completely forget the other one for a moment. Yeah. You always do a little bit of teaching, and PhD students, for example, are expected to contribute to teaching at the university. So I have done a bit of teaching during those, but basically I had one semester off, and then I had a two-year research leave that ended, I think, last January. So, What are you currently working on, on research? And have you new ideas for new New compared researches? to what? New to what I thought before, or new to what other people are thinking? New to that, uh, you haven't started yet. Oh, 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 lots of those. Um, so what I study is the way people use machine translation, and specifically raw machine translation. So there, there are two major ways it's used. One is that translators take the raw stuff that the machine pumps out, and they edit it so that it becomes a much better quality. And this is often published 
There are differing opinions about whether it should exactly match human level quality, so you can't tell the difference between that and something that a human translated from scratch, or if it should be pretty close, but it might be stylistically a bit off, because often translators are doing it rather quickly. And the other way machine translation is used is the way you and I and many other people take something from Google Translate and use it for whatever purpose. Information we need just to find out what's you know going on, and that's the side I study. I also teach post-editing to our students, but my research is all about the other way of using machine translation, which is the normal people way. And surprisingly, this side is the one that is less researched currently, even though I could only find one estimate of the number of users of raw machine translation. And this estimate was from 2016, and it was 1 billion people using it that way. So, and yet it's a highly under-researched area. We don't know what circumstances they're using it in, how they use it, what their perception of this machine translation is, how they see it in relation to human translation. Do they see it as the same thing or something quite different? All of these questions still are looking for answers. How can it be so little research? I mean, if one billion people approximately use it, that's like, I've lost the track how many people live on this planet, but it's like seven, seven, seven or eight seven million. million. Yeah, something between those that's, two. That's ridiculously many. And how is it possible it's so little research? I, th- I think one reason is that people don't see it as something that is real. It's not a thing. Like, if you talk to them, they might say, well, I never use machine translation. But then when they start thinking and you say, you never use Google Translate? Well, yeah, that, but. So they don't see it as something that's worthy of of research. And of course, when you talk about it, then they'll say, yeah, of course, you know, there are these one billion people using it. Of course, that's worthy of research. But in their everyday life, they don't recognize it as something that, you know, this is an interesting thing going on. And not only I'm doing that, but... You know, my mother and cousin and everybody is doing this thing. So I think that's one reason. Another might be that it's just so new. Google Translate got, which is, I'm using just because it's the most well-known and most highly used. It got good enough to be usable only in the last 10 to 15 years. And that's only for some languages. So the growth of it is very, very recent. And I'd say it's boomed in maybe the last five, six years. And as the quality levels go up, then more and more people recognize that, hey, I could use this for something. So I think those are the reasons it's under-researched. Also, just sometimes it takes someone to start it and then others pick up. And what we have in this there, it has been research, of course, but it's been kind of a trickle over the last 10 to 15 years, but it never got momentum. And whereas other people were jumping on board and starting to research it. As languages are usually extremely complicated, no matter what language, every language has its own hard parts, at least to master perfectly, they're really complicated. What drives you to study translation programs of machine translation? I mean, isn't a human interpreter always better? Yes, absolutely. No question. A human translator will always beat the machine. If you look at pure language quality, then there's no question. And at some point, you'll probably ask, are we going to need humans in the future, human translators? Because I always get asked that. And I think we will always need human translators because there are certain contexts in which you absolutely need the best linguistic quality. But if you take into account other measures of quality besides 
what's purely the linguistic quality. So if you need something very quick and you don't need the best linguistic quality, then at that point you, you really start to consider like, is, is this better in some context, in some circumstances, will it serve everyone better than the human? Sometimes you only need to know a little bit of the translation so you can kind of finish it yourself. Unless, of course, it's from a completely new language. You have no idea of any single word. But from, let's say I had to translate something from German. I've studied it a little bit and I can speak it a little bit, but not that good. I could use like Google Translate maybe to translate the rough idea. And then I could translate it, finish it in myself, or about guess what it is, really. Yeah. Yeah, and you touched on two very important things that I've found in my research. The first thing you said is, if it's an area you don't know. And at least at this point in research, what we mostly have is people's reports of their own usage. So it, not everything has been tested yet, that's coming in the future. But one thing that I found in my research of self-reported use was that, yeah, it's very, very important if you are using it in an area you know well. Which, is, of course, and that's the same with any text. Of course, it, it's easier to use that information. The second important thing you said is that if it's a language I kind of know a little bit of, and this was another very important finding in my research and some past research, that people are often doing that. They're, they're very often translating from languages they have some knowledge of already. And as you said, I know a little German. Maybe I could take the Google Translate, fill in, some things. Another way that's really important is that you also, if you know the area well and something about the other language, you might be able to spot errors more easily. And this is an important thing to keep in mind when using raw machine translation is that there, you know, it's, it's not only a risk that there will be errors, there will be errors. And some of them are factual errors that will come through and users need to keep that in mind. So another reason it's important or why it's easier to use when you know the subject matter and you know the languages that you can spot the errors. Now that again is my own kind of hypothesis, but this hasn't been tested. Exactly how it helps to know the background, to know the other language. How are those machine translators made? That just came to my mind, it just popped. They're made by computer engineers. The earlier versions of the technology were made by basically, I always describe it as taking a a grammar book of your mother tongue and programming rules into the machine so that it could take language and try to produce a text in the other language, which is similar. But they moved on to a new technology in about 2016, I think was when, or maybe earlier, statistical machine translation came along. And that is a much more of a purely mathematical formulation of language. And I have a colleague that I work with who describes this, I love his description of it, that there was this horse in Germany in the late 1800s that was taught to do math, quote unquote, do math. And his owner would take him around to shows and people would pay to watch the owner say, what's two plus one? And the horse would tap and he'd say, oh, you're right. And he was proving that the horse knows math. Well, a psychologist was at one of these shows and, and watched this and said, well, okay, obviously what's happening is the horse is taking the cue from the owner. So he starts tapping and then he sees from the owner a little nod or some signal, some tone of voice that tells the horse to stop now. And so what, what it meant that was the horse looked like he knew math. 
he was producing something that we think of as math, but he never knew math. And machine translation, especially the statistical kind, is a lot like that. We teach a machine to produce language that we accept as good language or decent enough language, and the quality gets better and better, so good language, but it never means that the machine learned to produce that language. It's just that we've taught it how to uh, look at statistical probabilities about what would be the correct translation for this sentence in Finnish into English. So it just follows rules that we give to them and this word is this and it, so It used to be more like that, that we would tell them what rules they should learn or what rules the machine should learn. Nowadays it's more left up to the machine to arrive at the logic itself about how it's going to construct the language. And then we get so deep into this that I'm not qualified to tell you exactly how that works. What new ideas do uh, you have ideas. that you'd like to research but you haven't had the time to start them or do you have any any of those? Yeah, well my, my PhD is is a kind that instead of digging very deeply into one question, it's kind of a broad look at what's going on in this area. So that kind of research tends to produce more questions than it answers. And that's exactly what I intended to do. So yeah, there are many, many, many questions produced through this that I would like to jump into tomorrow if I could. But yeah, I have to first get through the PhD and then move on to that. What kind of a future do you see for your research topic, machine translations, let's say, as that's one you're studying at the moment? Yeah, of course there's a ton of research on machine translation, always has been. Uh, in the past I'd say totally wild guess, 85% has to do with how to produce the technology and how to improve the production of language through this technology. A growing amount of research is focusing on how translators do post-editing and use raw machine translation to produce better language. And up till now, this focus on what normal people actually do with this has been a very, very small percentage. In the future, I would hope that would grow. If you take a look at other technologies, this is a very normal progression. The internet, when it was being built and improved, most of the focus was on the technology itself. And then at one point somebody said, let's see what people are doing with it. And that started off very, very small, but it's grown into its own discipline nowadays called Internet Studies, which is completely focused on how people use it. So I think this is kind of a, a normal progression of things that first produce the technology, then people start using it. And then somebody says, well, we better figure out what they're doing with it. And what what is it they're doing with it that we can learn from and pump that back into making better technology? So instead of focusing just on how to make better linguistic quality, what can we do to improve other things that would make it more workable for people that don't have to do specifically with the linguistic quality that's produced by the machine? So I'll give you an example. This thing that it is helpful to know something of the language being translated from. One thing I saw in my research is that means that people want to see the original text. So they're using it together with the translated text. And that means that the tools should make it easy to do that. That, okay, Google Translate shows them side by side, but many tools that translate whole documents, then there would be a need for people to anyway see both the original and the translated thing together. So this is the kind of information we can get from studying users that could be put back into making tools that are more usable. Well, then that's about it. 
thank you for coming over today, Mary Norman. No problem. It was fun. Thank you.